This is a reading of the book uh, Anthroposophical Guidelines by Rudolf Steiner, also known as Anthroposophical Leading Thoughts. This is section four, and it begins at the dawn of the Michael Age. Up until the ninth century, after the mystery of Golgotha, man's relation to his thinking was different than afterward. He did not feel that the thoughts which lived in his mind were of his own making. He considered them to be inspirations from a spiritual world. Even when he had thoughts deriving from his sense perceptions, these thoughts were, for him, revelations from the divine, which spoke to him through the senses. Whoever has spiritual vision will understand this feeling. For when a spiritual reality informs his soul, he never feels that he has formed the thoughts needed to grasp the spiritual perception, but he envisions the thoughts which are contained in the perception as objectively as the perception itself. With the ninth century, of course such dates are to be understood as being approximate, the transitions occurring gradually, the spark of personal individual intelligence ignited. Man had the feeling, I form my thoughts. And this forming of thoughts became the most important element in his soul life, so that the thinkers saw the essence of the human soul in intelligent behavior. Previously, they had an imaginative conception of the soul. They didn't see its essence in the forming of thoughts, but in its participation in the spiritual content of the world. They considered that supersensible spiritual beings were thinking in them. Soul, for them, was what lives in man from the supersensible spiritual world. From the moment one penetrates with perception into the spiritual world, he encounters authentic spiritual beings. According to ancient teachings, the power from which the thoughts about things flow was known by the name Michael. The name can be retained. For, one can say, once human beings received thoughts from Michael, Michael governed cosmic intelligence. From the ninth century on, people no longer felt that Michael inspired their thoughts. They had escaped his domina domination. They fell from the spiritual world into individual human minds. From then on, thoughts would evolve within humanity. At first, people were uncertain as to what they now possessed. This uncertainty inhabited the scholastic teachings. The scholastics were divided between realists and nominalists, the realists led by Thomas of Aquinas and those close to him, felt the old connection between thought 
and thing. They, therefore, saw reality in the thoughts that lived in things. They viewed human thoughts as reality which flowed from things into the mind. The nominalists strongly felt that the mind forms the thoughts. They considered thoughts to be only subjective, which live in the mind and which have nothing to do with things. They opined that thoughts were only names, invented by men for the things. Parenthesis, they didn't speak about, uh, quote, thoughts, close quote, but, quote, universals, close quote. But that is irrelevant in principle, for thoughts always have something universal compared to the individual thing. Close parenthesis. One can say, the realists wanted to be true to Michael, even though thoughts had fallen from his realm into that of man. As thinkers, they wanted to serve Michael as the prince of cosmic intelligence. The nominalists, in their unconscious minds, fulfilled the separation from Michael. They considered man rather than Michael to be the owner of thoughts. Nominalism gained in diffusion and influence. This situation prevailed up until the last third of the nineteenth century. At that time, those people who understood the events in the universe felt that Michael had accompanied the stream of intellectual life. He sought a new metamorphosis of his cosmic task. Previously, he let the thoughts from the spiritual world flow into human souls. From the last third of the nineteenth century on, he wants to he wants to live in human souls in which thoughts are formed. Previously, the people related to Michael saw him unfold his activities in the spirit world. Now they realized that they should allow Michael to reside in their hearts. They dedicated their thought-filled spiritual life to him. Now, in free individual thinking life, they let themselves be instructed by Michael as to the soul's right path. Human beings who in their previous earth lives were inspired by Michael in their thinking, who were therefore Michael's servants, felt themselves attracted to such voluntary Michael associations at the end of the nineteenth century, when they again lived on earth. From then on, they considered their old instigator of thoughts to be the guide to higher thoughts. He who is able to value such thoughts, such things, knows what a transformation took place during the last third of the nineteenth century in respect to human thinking. Previously, man could only feel how thoughts formed from within his being. From the above-mentioned time, 
he was able to lift himself above his being. He could turn meaning toward the spiritual. Michael meets him there and shows himself to be related to all thinking activity. He frees thoughts from the region of the head. He clears the way to the heart for them. He liberates enthusiasm from feeling, so that man can mindfully dedicate himself to all which he can experience in the light of thoughts. The Michael age has dawned. Hearts begin to have thoughts. Enthusiasm no longer streams from mere mystical obscurity, but from thinking endowed with clarity of mind. To understand this means to receive Michael in one's sensibility. Thoughts which today strive toward grasping the spiritual must come from hearts which beat for Michael as the fiery prince of thought of the universe. Translator's footnote. In the original German, the word Zela, soul, is used when Steiner uses the word mind. However, in much of the context of these paragraphs, the word mind, which does not exist in German, would normally be used in English. I have therefore rather shakily substituted mind for soul wherever I deemed appropriate. Wherever mind appears above, the reader should perhaps realize that the original reads soul. End of translators aside. Number 79 One can spiritually approach the third hierarchy, archai, archangeloi, angeloi, when one becomes so acquainted with thinking, feeling, and willing that he sees in them the spirit being active in the soul. At first, thinking places only images in the world, not something real. Feeling moves in this imagery, speaking for reality in man, but cannot fully manifest it. Willing unfolds a reality, which requires the body, but which does not act consciously in its formation. What is essential in thinking in order to make the body the basis of this thinking? What is essential in feeling to make the body a participant in a reality? What is essential in willing? in order to consciously participate in the body's formation, is alive in the third hierarchy. Number 80 One can spiritually approach the second hierarchy, exousiae, dunamis, curiotities, when one envisions the facts of nature as manifestations of the living spirit in them. The second hierarchy, then, has nature as its residence in order to work in it on souls. Number 81 
one can spiritually approach the first hierarchy, seraphim, cherubim, thrones, when one envisions the facts of nature and human life as the deeds or creations of the spirit acting in them. The first hierarchy, then, has the natural and human realms as the scene of its unfolding activity. Number 82. Man gazes up at the star worlds. What he sees is the external manifestation of the spiritual beings and their deeds, of which we spoke in the previous considerations as the beings of the spiritual realms or hierarchies. Number 83. The earth is the stage for the three realms of nature and the human realm, insofar as they manifest the deeds of spiritual beings to the external senses. Number 84. The forces which work into the earthly realms of nature and humanity by spiritual beings reveal themselves to the human spirit through true spiritual knowledge of the star worlds. The state of the human soul before the Michael age. Today we will add a consideration of the ideas which relate to quote, at the dawn of the Michael age. Close quote. The Michael age has arisen in the evolution of humanity after the predominance of intellectual thinking, on the one hand, and that of human perception directed toward the external sense world, the physical world, on the other. Thinking is not essentially a development toward materialism. The world of ideas, which in older times had come to man as inspiration, became the property of the human mind in the period which preceded the Michael age. It no longer receives ideas quote, from above, close quote, from the spiritual content of the cosmos, but conceives them from man's own spirituality. For the first time man has become sufficiently mature to contemplate his own spiritual being. Previously he had not penetrated so deeply into his own nature. He saw himself as a drop separated from the spiritual cosmic sea in order to live on earth and eventually to be reunited with that cosmos. This process of thought formation now constitutes an enhancement of human self-knowledge. Viewed supersensibly, it looks like this. The spiritual powers, which we may designate as, quote, Michael, close quote, govern the ideas in the spiritual cosmos. Man experienced these ideas in that his soul participated in the Michael world. This experiencing has now become his own. 
a temporary separation from the Michael world has therewith occurred. Previously, by means of inspired thoughts, man received at the same time the spiritual cosmic content. When this inspiration ended, he became dependent upon the senses in order to have content for his thoughts. Therefore the content of the spirituality he had obtained had to be suffused with materialism. He fell into the materialistic viewpoint at a time when his own spiritual being advanced to a higher stage than the previous one. This is easily misunderstood. One can consider only the, quote, fall, unquote, into materialism and rue it. But whereas perception during this age had to be limited to the external physical world, within the soul a purified, self-subsisting spirituality developed as experience. In the Michael age, the experience no longer needs to be unconscious, but can become conscious of its nature. This means the entrance into the human soul of the Michael essence. During a certain time, man filled his spirit with the material content of nature. He should now fill it again with the cosmic content of his original spirituality. Thinking lost itself for a while in the materiality of the cosmos. It must find itself again in the cosmic spirit. Warmth, being-filled spirit reality, can enter into the cold, abstract thought world. This characterizes the dawn of the Michael age. It was only by separation from the universal thinking essence could consciousness of freedom de develop in the depths of the human soul. What came from the heights had to be rediscovered in the depths. Therefore, the development of this consciousness of freedom was originally oriented only to knowledge of external nature. While man was unconsciously learning to mold purity of ideas within his spirit, his senses were directed outward toward the material world, which in no way affected the tender seed germinating in his soul. But in perceiving the exterior material world, experiencing the spirit and therewith spiritual seeing can be introduced in a new way. What has been learned about nature under the sign of materialism can be spiritually grasped by the inner life of the soul. Michael, who spoke, quote, from above, close quote, can be heard, quote, from within, close quote, where he will now take up residence. Speaking imaginatively, this can be expressed thus. The sun quality, 
which man for a long time only received from the cosmos, will shine from within the soul. He will learn to speak of an inner sun. In life, between birth and death, he will, of course, be no less an earth being, but he will recognize his developing being as guided by the sun, S-U-N. He will feel as truth that an essence shines a light on him from within, but one which is not kindled there. At the dawn of the Michael age, it may still seem as though all this is far beyond humanity. However, it is near, quote, in the spirit, close quote, it must only be seen. <clears throat> Immeasurably much depends upon this fact, that man's ideas are not merely thought, but are also seen. 85. Number 85. During the present cosmic era, man experiences himself in waking consciousness. This experiencing conceals from him the presence of the third hierarchy within his wakefulness. Number 86. In dream consciousness, man experiences his own being, united with the spiritual essence of the universe, in a chaotic way. If imagination is placed as the other pole to this dream consciousness, man would realize that the second hierarchy is present in his experience. Number 87. In the consciousness of dreamless sleep, man experiences his own being united with the spiritual essence of the universe, but without his conscious knowledge. If inspiration is placed as the other pole to this consciousness of dreamless sleep, he would realize that the first hierarchy is present in his experience. Aphorisms from a lecture for members given on August 24, 1924 in London. At the present stage of its development, human consciousness develops three forms, the waking, the dreaming, and the dreamless, sleeping consciousness. Waking consciousness experiences the sensory outer world, forms ideas about it, and can create from these ideas those which depict a purely spiritual world. Dreaming consciousness develops images which transform the outer world for example, the sun shining on a bed can become a great fire with many details, or it presents one's inner world in symbolic pictures to the soul, for example, a strongly beating heart in the image of an overheated oven. Memories also appear transformed in dream consciousness. The content of such images, which do not derive from the sensory but from the spiritual world, nevertheless do not provide the possibility to knowingly penetrate into the spiritual world because their dimness does not allow them to be completely raised to waking consciousness and because what does get through cannot be readily grasped.
It is possible, however, directly upon waking from the dream world, to grasp enough to recognize that it is the imperfect impression of a spiritual experience that pervades sleep, but which, for the most part, evades waking consciousness. In order to see this clearly, it is only necessary to shape the moment of waking so that it doesn't invoke the outer world to the mind in one beat, but so that the mind, without looking outward, concentrates on the inner experience. Dreamless sleep consciousness lets the soul pass through experiences which in memory appear as only undifferentiated events in time. One will speak of these experiences as being non-existent, as long as one does not access them through spiritual scientific investigation. If this is done, however, one develops imaginative and inspired consciousness, as described in anthroposophical literature, for the pictures and the inspirations of experiences from previous earth lives rise to the surface and then one can comprehend the content of dream consciousness. It is a content which is incomprehensible to waking consciousness, for it applies to the world in which man sojourns as a disembodied soul between two earth lives. If one learns what is hidden in dream and sleeping consciousness, during the contemporary stage of world evolution, then the way will be opened to knowledge of the evolutionary forms of human consciousness during previous stages. One cannot, however, achieve this by means of external research, for the evidence thus obtained only indicates the after-effects of human consciousnesses prehistoric experiences. Anthroposophical literature provides information on how to achieve a vision of such experiences through spiritual research. This research finds that in ancient Egyptian times dream consciousness was much closer to waking consciousness than is the case today. Memories of the dream experiences streamed into waking consciousness, which presented not merely the sensory impressions in clearly contoured thoughts, but also united with these thoughts the spirit which acts in the sensory world. In this way man and his consciousness existed instinctively in the spiritual world, which he had abandoned during his earthly incarnation and which he would again enter upon passing through the portal of death. Objective study of the writing in monuments and elsewhere clearly indicates the existence of such a consciousness, which belonged to a time when external records did not exist. Sleep consciousness in ancient Egyptian times contained dreams of the spiritual world 
in a way similar to the present daydreams which contain elements derived from the physical world. One finds, however, still another consciousness in other peoples. Sleep streamed its experiences into wakefulness in such a way that a vision of previous earth lives was instinctively present. Ancient people's traditional knowledge of repeated earth lives originated from this form of consciousness. One finds again in developed imaginative cognition what in ancient times was a dimly instinctive dream consciousness, but now it is a fully waking consciousness. And one is also aware through inspired cognition of the ancient instinctive insight which still saw something of repeated earth lives. Present-day historical scholarship does not take note of this development of human forms of consciousness. It prefers to believe that contemporary consciousness forms were present as long as earthly humanity existed. And evidence of such different consciousness forms, as is contained in myths and fairy tales, they take to be the result of an outflow of ancient man's poetic fantasy. This is the end of my Part 4 of Anthroposophical Guidelines. Part 5 will begin with, lead, uh, with guideline or leading thought number 88. So this is up to but not including leading thought number 88.